let's stand together. Let's call upon the Lord to bless this time of teaching. And uh, as we look into His Word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time. Thank You for our church family. Uh, we, some are, are noticeably absent today, but we uh, are hope, hopeful that You're going to be with them today, Lord, and encourage their hearts for the remnant that's here today. We pray, Lord, that You would bless us. That You would uh, lift us up by the teaching of Your Word. That You would, uh, God, today as we look around and see uh, what is happening around the world, we pray, Lord, that Your Word would be a guidepost. That it would be a, a light. A lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. That it would show us and help us to filter through, God, what is happening in the world around us. May we be stayed on Your Word, Lord. Open our eyes, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, and then you'll be turning also over to Psalm 83 in just a bit. But first, Matthew chapter 16. The title of this message is the beginning of a three-part series. Uh, entitled, The series is entitled, The Word and the Newspaper. You'll find out why in just a moment. But I want to walk us through a three-part series really on current events. Uh, this is not something I've, I've really uh, done much in the past. Uh, every once in a while, we'll hit current events in the news and what's happening in our world and uh, try to respond to it in a biblical fashion. And I'm just so impressed um, by the Lord and confirmed by talking to Pastor Yvonne this weekend. Uh, I'm so impressed and have been so impressed for some time now that uh, we are in a very historic moment in the history of the world. This part one of this three-part series is entitled, Israel Singled Out Again. Israel Singled Out Again. Next week we'll look at what to expect from what's happening elsewhere outside of Israel. And then in the third and final part of our series, the first Sunday in October, uh, I have a message entitled Part 3, God Guide America. God Guide America. As the United States, as American Christians respond biblically to what is happening all around us. So, three-part series entitled The Word in the Newspaper. Part 1 today, Israel Singled Out Again. We live in a unique time in the world. It wasn't two years ago, 18 months ago, that we had what was called the Arab Spring. Uh, Arab peoples and nations rose up and began to throw off their dictators, throw off their oppressors. There was a rise uh, among people uh, jumping up and, and crying out for their rights, for their freedoms, for a change in their nation's government, for a change in the way things had been going. They wanted a change in the status quo. And so civil wars began to break out throughout the Middle East. It started in Tunisia. It spread to Libya. It went on to Egypt, Yemen, Syria. It had been there for some time and it became exacerbated. In Iran, it had been there for some time and is again continuing to this day. And these are to just name a few of the nations in which there is great chaos and turmoil. Dictators have been brought to justice in some cases. 
In other cases, they've been uh, brutally uh, murdered without trial. Some have opted for exile to other friendly nations. Democracies have been rising up. But what's interesting in these democracies in the Arab world is that the newly democratic elected leaders uh, appear more and more and more to be more radical than their original oppressors. That is to say, the people in these nations are throwing off dictators, throwing off oppressors, and raising up new men who may appear and it may unfold that they're worse than the former. And there's a growing spotlight on Israel today. We know of the age-old conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. Rocket attacks are constantly taking place. These have spread to the southern border with Egypt. I learned, uh, it wasn't even a week ago, that I read an article in which uh, the school children had to go home for the day. And the reason they had to go home was because of rocket attacks from the southern border with Egypt. You know, our kids go home because they got a scratch on their leg. Israeli children go home because people are firing rockets at their schools. There are incursions from Syria to the north and Lebanon. And Israel is becoming increasingly aware of what is happening in Iran with a radical leader in that part of the world. Radical Ayatollahs. Iran is... Um, what many experts would, uh, would say are using their newfound nuclear technologies to perhaps develop a nuclear bomb. And there are talks between Israel's Benjamin Netanyahu, the United States' Barack Obama, and many of the Western nations trying to figure out what do we do with President Ahmadinejad in Iran. Interestingly enough, as I preach this message, the nations are convening right now in New York City for the General Assembly of the United Nations. I encourage you to pay attention to these gatherings. I also encourage you to pray for and watch as our President delivers his address on Tuesday. It's going to be an important moment in American history. You have Netanyahu on the one hand who is uh, coming to the end of his rope and believing that Israel is at its wit's end, needing to preemptively defend herself from an Iranian regime which wants openly, speaks openly about the destruction and the death of Israel, of the Jewish state. And then on the other hand, you have many of the Western nations, including our own, who are saying, wait just a little longer. Let's see if diplomacy can work. Let's see if we can persuade them through sanctions and diplomacy. Let's see if we can persuade the Iranian government to abandon its nuclear efforts. Interestingly enough, not even three days ago, uh, as, we're, as these nations are lobbying back and forth as far as what we should do with the nation of Iran, not three days ago, the Israeli government declassified a large chunk of intelligence information. The title of the article in the Times of Israel was this, Mossad's, and Mossad, just so you know, is essentially the CIA of Israel, Mossad's tip-off 
ahead of Yom Kippur War did not reach Prime Minister, newly released papers show. And I'll read the excerpt. It says this, The Israeli Mossad intelligence agency knew a full week in advance that Egypt was planning to launch a surprise attack on Yom Kippur in 1973, but did not pass Mossad, did not pass the information on in an orderly and explicit way to Prime Minister Golda Meir's office, according to formally classified information released Thursday. That is to say that the Israeli people are now learning a new narrative about their nation. They're learning that some 40 years ago, when their nation was given a surprise attack by Egypt, among many other nations, on Yom Kippur 1973, the Israeli people are learning today that that attack was foreknown by their own intelligence agencies, but that it did not get passed up the ladder fast enough. You might wonder, why did this information get declassified three days ago, some 40 years later? I would argue that it's perhaps an attempt to sway public opinion in favor in Israel and around the world of a preemptive attack on Iran, much like Israel waged on its enemies during the Six-Day War in 1967. But that's just speculation. And then we have a film. A film you've all been hearing about. A film made by an American uh, Coptic Egyptian man, allegedly, um, in California no less, just 30 minutes up the road in Cerritos. This film has stirred up the nations that are beholden to Islam. Radical clerics began to stir up mobs in various countries throughout the Middle East due to this little-known film that got great attention over the last couple of weeks since the anniversary, uh, leading up to the anniversary of 9-11. And on the day of 9-11, this year, on the 11th anniversary, there were mobs and attacks and violence taking place throughout the Middle East. Once again, an uprising that we've seen at the Arab Spring 18 months ago and that has been continuing on, civil war and strife, seemingly escalating, so much so had it escalated that the U.S. ambassador to Libya was murdered by terrorists, allegedly from Al-Qaeda, on that fateful night, just now two weeks ago. Why do I speak of all these things? It is remarkable how quickly, how quickly various nations, variegated nations I might add, Sunnis and Shia, Ba'athists and Kurds, it is remarkable how these many variegated nations in the Middle East who often do not get along with one another join together in violent protest against a film that when asked the average um, Muslim man on the streets, have you seen this film? 99.99% had said no. I'd never seen the film. But just the idea of offending their beloved prophet was enough to bring about unity among so much of the Middle East. If that can be done, 
by a film no one has seen, how much more might it be done if and when the Jewish people preemptively strike Iran as everyone expects them to do in the coming weeks and months? I'm not speculating. I'm speaking to you what everyone, every intelligence officer in Israel, what every revolutionary guardsman in Iran, what every man in the CIA and in the U.S. government believes to be true. And that is that there will be war sometime this fall. That Israel is very likely to launch an attack on the nation of Iran. Now some of you might be saying, Neil, you spend way too much time on the newspaper. Way too much time in the newspaper. And I say, guilty as charged. I do. But Jesus had something to say about that too. Look at Matthew chapter 16. I asked you to turn there. Matthew chapter 16. Jesus had some unique words to say in His day and age, which I think are relevant for today. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 1, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're, they're, they're quizzing Jesus. They're trying to get Him to, 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 to give them a special kind of teaching. A special kind of sign. And this is what they, how they interact with Him in verse 1. Then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and testing Jesus, they asked that He would show them a sign from heaven. And Jesus answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, Oh, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites. Hypocrites. You know how to discern the face of the sky but you cannot discern the signs of the times? Jesus' rebuke is noteworthy here. He says, you, you religious leaders, you Pharisees, you Sadducees, you're able to look up at the sky and determine what kind of weather is going to occur. You're able to look up at the sky and see the signs and watch them before you and you're able to predict the weather. Wonderful. Great. You can predict that lowly thing. But are you so ignorant as to ignore the signs of the times? Implicit in this disparaging word from Jesus to the Pharisees, implicit in this critique that He's giving to the religious leaders of Israel, Jesus is suggesting to them that they ought to know the signs of the times that they ought to know what is about to occur, that they ought to be anticipating what is about to unfold. Implicit in this criticism is Jesus' suggestion that these religious leaders should be very, very well aware, alert, cognizant, prepared of what is happening in their world. And so... In the words of the famous Swiss theologian Karl Barth, as he gave instructions to young theologians in the year before his death, he urged them 
Take your Bible and take your newspaper and read both, but interpret newspapers from your Bible. Take your Bible and take your newspaper and read both, but interpret newspapers from your Bible. We could imagine Jesus saying something to that effect here in Matthew 16, verse 3. That's precisely the criticism He's giving. That these Pharisees and Sadducees have no idea what is about to unfold in Israel. And yet, it had already been laid out for them. It had already been written for them in God's Word. So us, 21st century Western Evangelical Americans, will we be like the Pharisees and Sadducees who are able to predict the weather? Oh, it's going to be hot today. Ooh, might be chilly later on. Or are we going to go a little further? Are we going to open our eyes to what's happening around us in America, in our world, particularly in Israel and the Middle East? Are we going to be a people who is aware and who is focused? Not, not throwing out random predictions. Not giving dates and, and absolute qualifiers. I, I don't want to come here and have us all just speculate wildly. I want us to do so in accordance with God's Word. What does God's Word say about what's going to unfold? What does God's Word say about what is in store for Israel, for the nations, for our own nation? The Bible has a lot to say about the days we are living in now. I'd like you to turn in your Bible to Psalm 83. Psalm 83. You might think it a very unlikely portion of Scripture to turn to as we consider the topic of current events. But in Psalm 83, we have a song. A psalm of Asaph, who was a musical leader appointed by David. He penned 12 of the psalms. He penned 12 of them. We might always think that David penned them all. Not so. Asaph, one of David's musical leaders, wrote 12 of the very psalms in your Scriptures. And I want to read this together with you and find in it some of the signs of the times. Psalm 83, beginning in verse 1. Asaph calling out to the Lord, and this is what he says. Do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace. Do not be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make a tumult. For those who hate you have lifted up their head. They have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. Here's Asaph turning up to the Lord and crying out for help. In that particular day and age, Israel was actually at one of its strongest points as a nation. It was not sufficiently being attacked from all sides. But Asaph had remembered the days in which it was. And there were campaigns even during the reign of David in which Israel was being bombarded from the left and from the right. But it seems to me that Asaph was also looking forward. Looking forward beyond his day to a day in which Israel would continue to experience hardship and strife from the nations around her. 
And what he says about his people, Israel, is astounding. What he calls upon God to do is remarkable as we relate it to even this day and age. He calls upon God. He says, God, don't be silent. Don't hold your peace. Literally in Hebrew, he's saying, don't be deaf, Lord. Don't be deaf. Wake up. These people who have gathered around us, they lifted up their head. These enemies who cause a tumult, they hate you. They've lifted up their head, meaning to become proud, to become hostile. Their goal, He gives us their goal, what these people do. They, they, they take counsel together. They consult together. What do they consult about? They consult, they cooperate, they convene to speak about Israel, to speak about the Jews, to determine how they might deal with God's chosen. And this is their goal, verse 4. And they have said, Come, let us cut Israel off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. This is a fascinating portion of Scripture. In 1956, some ten years before the Six-Day War, Abdul Nasser, who was then... uh, high-level general of Egypt, had said, quote, we are going to drive the Jews into the sea and wipe them out as a nation. End quote. That same year, a war exploded. The Sinai War. To the surprise of many, Israel won that war within a few days. Days. Some ten years later, that same Abdul Nasser now the full-fledged leader of the United Arab Republic, a confederation of nations, namely Egypt, Syria, among others. The same man in 1967 said, quote, we are going to grind Israel into the ground. We are going to push her into the sea. We are going to wipe out Israel and no one will ever remember her again. End quote. Unwittingly, Abdul Nasser was speaking the words almost verbatim of Psalm 83, verse 4. And as he said those words again in 1967, another war commenced, the Six-Day War. This time it didn't take a few days for Israel to defeat them. It took six, a little bit longer. Arnold Fruchtenbaum writes in his book, The Footsteps of the Messiah, quote, It's no coincidence that Nasser, the former dictator of Egypt, repeated this verse, Psalm 83, verse 4, almost word for word. While such a conspiracy of the Arab nations has been present since 1948 and was evident more so during and after the Six-Day War, quote, it is to have its full force, Arnold writes, in the Great Tribulation. And William MacDonald, I give you a quote also on your outline from William MacDonald. He writes, Psalm 83 took on new meaning after the Six-Day War. And perhaps it would have further fulfillments before Israel's claim to the land is irrevocably settled by the coming of the Lord Jesus to reign as King. In other words, as these wars would commence and end abruptly, and commence and end abruptly, the people of Israel would look at Psalm 83 and say, my goodness, this is remarkable. 
the comparisons that we see in the Word of God here and in what transpires in our nation when people rise up and say these things about us. On your outline, number one, the threat. The threat to God's chosen people is real. It's real. It's historically verified. And it's presently at work. On your outline, number one, the threat to God's chosen people is real. It's historically verified and it's presently at work. I've given you examples from the land of Egypt, but it's not just Egypt. Go on to verse 5 in Psalm 83. For they have consulted, the psalmist writes, they've consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you, Israel. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebel, Ammon, Amalek, Philistia and the inhabitants of Tyre. Assyria has also joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot, Selah. The wars of Israel since 1948. There was the Arab-Israeli War, which involved Egypt, Iraq, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, the Palestinians. Fast forward eight years, the Sinai War, 1956, involved Egypt. Fast forward nine years, the Six-Day War, involved Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Iraq. Two years later, the War of Attrition, Egypt, the Soviet Union. 1973, the Yom Kippur War, Egypt, Syria, Iraq. 1982 to 85, the first Lebanon war, the Palestinians, Lebanon, Syria. Two decades later, a second Lebanon war, this time Lebanon, particularly Hezbollah. I turn your attention to verse 6, 7, and 8, the list of nations that Asaph uh, rattles off as he speaks of a perpetual confederacy of nations that appear time and time and time again to come after God's chosen people. On your outline, I've categorized them into six groups. The Ishmaelites equal the totality of the Arab people. When we say the Ishmaelites, we might say all of Arabia. When we look at the Hagrites, and Amalek, we're looking particularly at the territory of Egypt, Sinai, the Egyptians. When you see the people of Philistia, we know that in modern terms to be precisely the location of the Gaza Strip, the Palestinians. When you see Edom, Moab, and Ammon, that's north, central, and south. Jordan, the nation of Jordan. When you see Gebel and Tyre, you might think Lebanon, precisely the same locations. And when you see Assyria, you might liken them to the territories of modern day Syria and Iraq. He goes on to mention that Assyria joined with the children of Lot, who were Moab and Ammon, Jordan. Why do I bring up these parallels? 
Because they're not without coincidence. Take a look at the list. Take a look at the nations that Asaph speaks of, not only historically, not only presently, but prophetically. He speaks of territories, of lands, that year after year, decade after decade, century after century, millennium after millennium, appear to rise up in conflict with God's chosen people. And so we say, number two on your outline, national titles have changed. National titles have changed. But the territories of conflict remain the same. The territories of conflict remain the same. What do we do about it? What do we do about this mess? Asaph has a particular prayer to the Lord about it. Look at verse 9. Deal with them, Asaph prays. Deal with them, God, as with Midian, as with Sisera, as with Jabin at the brook Kishon, who perished at Endor. No, that's not uh, the, the moon of Endor, Scott. I know you're a Star Wars fan. That's a different Endor. Who, who became as refuse on the earth. Make their nobles like Oreb and like Zeb. Guess all their princes, Zaboth and Zalmunna, who said, let us take for ourselves the pastures of God, Israel, for a possession. We're not going to look particularly at these conflicts. I want to speak about them generically. Oreb, Zeb, Zeba, Zalmunna, were you to read Judges 7 and 8, you would see the campaign of Gideon overcoming these wicked people and nations, particularly the nation of Midian. And they were to the south of Israel. Turn a couple chapters earlier in Judges to, king, to watch of King Jabin of Canaan and General Sisera, Jabin's general, in Judges 4 and 5, they were located to the north of Israel. And they were brought low by Deborah, by Barak, the great general. From the north to the south, from Jabin and Sisera to the Midians, Israel, in the book of Judges, as they were beginning to take hold of the land, God protected her. God helped her. God assisted her in her time of need. Number three on your outline, let us call upon God to protect Israel as He has done in the past. Let us call upon God to protect Israel as He has done in the past. That's precisely the prayer of Asaph. He cries out and says, help us, just like you've done in the past. Whether it's an attack from the south, Midian, an attack from the north, another Jabin or Sisera, protect us, God. Be with us in our time of strife. And I encourage you to read of those stories, of those battles. Good for the kids especially. My son would love those stories. He loves the good guys and the bad guys. Verse 13, Asaph's prayer continues. Verse 13, O oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like the chaff before the wind, as the fire burns the woods and as the flame sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them with your tempest and frighten them with your storm. 
Many of you know a man by the name of Walid Shobat. He's a uh, uh, former radical uh, Muslim turned Christian living now in America and speaking often about the conflicts in the Middle East. Uh, Some of you have read his books and articles. He was a witness. Uh, He was a part of, I should say. (laughs) He was an antagonist uh, of Israel during the Six-Day War. And Walid Shobat rose up with his people and went to fight against Israel in the Six-Day War in 1967. In retrospect, having fought in that war, uh, he wrote an article about it, and particularly about its correlation to Psalm 83, particularly the verses we just read, 13, 14, and 15 in focus. And he wrote this, quote, I lived Psalm 83 during the Six-Day War, when a few days prior, we were demonstrating in favor of Gamal al-Nasser, the Prime Minister of Egypt, who called for the destruction of Israel. We were demonstrating in favor with him. And just within hours before the battle, and before even a bullet was fired, we were shocked to see everyone fleeing. People piled up in cars, running on foot across the Jordan River to get away. Why? No one knows. But simply put, fear struck our hearts. Those of you that know the history of the Six-Day War would know that, that the Egyptians and their coalition probably outnumbered, Egypt, probably outnumbered the Israelis 100 to 1. They had weaponry. They had a weaponry uh, advantage of 100 to 1. They had a man advantage of 100 to 1. And yet, the Israeli preemptive strike on the Egyptian-led coalition in the Six-Day War turned a 100 to 1 advantage for Egypt into a total annihilation of the enemies of God's chosen people. Six days, the war was over. Walid Shobat says, I don't know why, but all my people were running in fear, in dread. Verse 15, Pursue them with your tempest. Frighten them with your storm. Verse 4 in your outline, Let us call upon God for justice. Justice. That's what's happening here. That's what Asaph's praying. He's saying, God, Justice for our enemies. Justice for those who would attack us. Justice for those who would come against us. Who would call for our annihilation. May You rain down justice and fear and chaos and confusion upon them. And I know what that prayer is like because I'm a man of justice. My wife can attest. I'm a man of justice. I like when justice occurs. You know, I... I, uh, when, when, the amb- when our ambassador was murdered on September 11, I, w- I couldn't sleep that night. I went to bed knowing an American diplomat had died in Libya. I woke up, the Lord just, for whatever reason, He just kept this situation on my heart and I was just praying and thinking about because I really felt that the world had, had materially changed. 
because of this. And sure enough, I woke up at 3 a.m. and I learned it was the ambassador, U.S. ambassador to Libya. First time in my lifetime the United States ambassador has been killed. Only six times in the history of the United States has that happened. Folks, this is not a small thing. It's usually, under most natural circumstances, an act of war. I'm a man who wants to cry out for justice. Find those perpetrators. Find those evil men who did this wicked deed, Lord, and bring them to justice. Strike fear in them. Cause chaos in them. Come like the whirlwind. And yet, that's not how this psalm ends. This psalm ends on a different note. Look at verse 16 to 18. Asaph finishes. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek Your name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and dismayed forever. Yes, it may be, this is the tone of the end of 17, it may be, Lord, that they may need to be put to shame and even perish. But let all of that occur, the shame, the chaos, the the confounding, and even death if need be. Let all that occur, verse 18, that they may know that You, whose name alone is the Lord, are the Most High over all the earth. Amen? Not merely justice. No way. Salvation. Not merely justice. Healing. Not merely that that evil men would be brought to rights, but that evil men would turn to the Lord God of Israel. Amen? That they would turn to Jesus, their Savior. Amen? That they would not turn to a religion that is wicked, to a prophet that has no business being called a prophet. That they would turn their eyes on one, the one, the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That all of this would occur for their salvation, their redemption, their hope. Five on your outline, but greater still, let us call upon God for salvation. For salvation of these people, of these nations. I was on the phone this week. I had the privilege of uh, speaking with Sammy Tanajo. If you don't know Sammy, uh, you can look at our missions board. He's one of our missionaries. He's our only missionary uh, who ministers particularly and on a daily basis, I should say, to uh, Muslims. Sammy himself is a former uh, Muslim. Uh, he's Egyptian-born, bo- Egyptian come to the U.S. He has a couple books out now that reach out evangelistically to Muslims. And I was asking him, I, I really wanted to press him this week because I, I wanted to get his take on what was happening in the world. And I'm on the phone with him saying, Sammy, you know, wh- what do you think? What's happening? What's going to transpire? And I was trying to get him to engage with me politically and, and, and uh, you know, what's happening in the world and, and what might occur prophetically in the future. And Sammy would have none of it. He didn't want to talk politics. He didn't want to talk prophecy. He didn't want to talk about any of that. All he kept saying was, Pastor Neil, I love the Muslim people. I love the Muslim people. I care about them so much. That's why I wrote my book. 
got to get his book. It's in the bookstore. Hand it to a Middle Eastern friend of yours. He says, I love the Muslim people. I care about them. I want them to be saved. He doesn't care about the politics. He doesn't care about what's going to transpire. Although I'm saying today we need to be engaged. But he cares ultimately and most prominently as Asaph cares for their salvation. That we would not be Western, evangelical, American Christians who look at the Middle East and say, we're done with them. That we would not look upon them with disdain or with hate or with disgust or give up on them, but that we would pity them. That we would know that the deeds of these evil men, it is because they're being guided by another enemy. They're being guided by Satan himself. They don't know Jesus. They need to know Him desperately. And we need to play a part in representing Jesus well to the Arab nations. Mohammed Morsi, the new president of Egypt, uh, is here in the United States. Uh, he is a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. I would argue a very radical uh, sect of Islam. And uh, his words in his first uh, interview with the American reporters was that uh, the United States needs to, his words, not mine, the United States needs to, quote, fundamentally change um, its relations with the Arab world. He's right. We need to stop hating them. We need to stop showing disdain. We need to not give up on these people. We need to love them with the love of Christ. We need to pity them with the mercy of Christ. We need to reach out to this people. Not give up on them. Not abandon them. There will be time for justice. There may be time for war. But through it all, we need to stand focused on the Gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing full well that much more than justice, these people need God's salvation that can only come through Jesus. And I know we won't give up. I know God's church won't give up because of what it is prophesied in in the latter part of Isaiah 19 on your outline at the bottom. In that day, this speaks of the kingdom of God, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrian will come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. And in that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt, with Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, My people, and Assyria, the work of My hands, and Israel, My inheritance. That is the hope. That we are not going to be nations going up against nations, but that we are going to be one people under the Lordship of Jesus Christ on the last day. That there will be Egyptians who turn away from Allah and turn to the Lord God of Israel. There will be Syrians and Iraqis and Iranians who turn away from Allah and turn to Yahweh. There will be a coming about of change 
Great change in this world where men and women, boys and girls, young and old, will see the Messiah, will confess Him in faith, and will turn away from their wicked deeds. Amen? This is the day, Isaiah 19, that we hope for. This is the day that we ask God to hearken and bring our way. Israel right now is very alone. Israel right now is seemingly at wit's end. And I can understand her if she does strike to protect her interests. And I'll stand with her as she does so. I hope the church will as well. But even as we stand with Israel in a very dire moment in the history of the world, do not give up on the people of the Middle East. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, our newspapers are filled with chaos. There's a lot, God, that is concerning. There's a lot that is troublesome. And we look online, we read articles, we open our newspapers, we turn on the TV, and it just seems to be getting worse. Oh God, help us in this time of great need. Help us by Your Spirit. Help us by Your Word. Help us to navigate well through this time. May our nation exhibit wisdom. I pray for President Obama that on Tuesday, as he gives an incredibly important speech that may dictate or change or, or, or continue what is American policy toward the Middle East, I just pray, Lord, that You'd give him wisdom. Give him great counsel. Give him great insight into Your Word to help bring about peace and hope and freedom. We pray, Lord, that the Gospel would be spread throughout the Middle East. We know that there are many who are coming to faith in Jesus. There are many throughout the Arab world who are changing their affiliation from Allah to Yahweh, from Muhammad to Jesus. We pray that that would rise up, that this day of a highway from Egypt to Assyria would hasten, and that, Lord, that, that, that the evil that we know is yet coming, that, Lord, that so many could be spared by turning to the Lord Jesus in faith. God, help us to have a heart for that part of the world. Help us to not give up on the Muslim people, but instead, Lord, to rise up in love, in grace, in a desire to share with them the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, there's going to be a day of justice. There's going to be a day where justice occurs. And there is reason to rejoice when justice prevails in the land. But greater still is there reason to rejoice when the grace of Jesus Christ prevails over the earth. We ask for that day to come, Lord. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.